Good morning. If you would stand with me for the reading of God's word, this morning we're going to be in John chapter 15, verses 18 through 25. I'll give you a second to get there. John 15, 18 through 25. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. But if they kept my word, they will, keep all, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my father. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. Good morning. Good morning. morning. Uh, If you guys would pray with me. Uh, Father, um, we love you, and we gather together here to worship your name. We're thankful that we have tasted and have seen uh, that Jesus is good, uh, that he's glorious. And because we've seen that of Jesus, we've seen that of you. Um. Lord, we ask that you would help us today, especially as we go through a text that's not necessarily a happy text. Um, It's a text that is sad and hard. Um, So we just ask that you would guide us through hard truths, uh, just as well as you guide us through easy truths or more comforting truths. Father, we also ask that your word today would cause us to change, to be more like Jesus and in, in a sense, with this word, to be more hated by the world. Lord, we pray that this word would also give us boldness to know that we are to go out into the world and proclaim Christ, and that we can expect what to receive back, because we have seen Christ. We've seen the path that he walks. So help us to just digest this text today. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, so there's a, a story told in the second half of 1 Samuel, so chapter 16 through all the way to the end, chapter 30, uh, that I think is pretty relevant, or at least it's one example of what our text is talking about today. Uh, In 1 Samuel 16, there's a turning point. God chooses David to be king, and he rejects Saul, who already is currently king. Uh, After uh, David is anointed by Samuel, the, the prophet, priest, high priest. Uh, he, in verse 13, it records this. And the spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. Samuel then leaves. And then the very next verse, which is a direct contrast, verse 14, it says this. Now the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul. So from that day forward, Saul's relationship with David changes. It travels from a kind of love. Oh, I really like this David guy. He's helpful to me. To a jealousy. Oh, I don't like this David guy. He's more popular to me. To secret plots to cause the downfall of David, to use other people to cause his downfall. To public outrage just no longer secretly. A few chapters into this saga in chapter 19 of 1 Samuel, you see Saul's own son, Jonathan, sticking up for David, saying to Saul in verse 5, why then will you sin against innocent blood by killing David without cause? A phrase that rings in our text today. Saul then changed his mind for, for a time, but soon he was heaving even a spear at his own son, Jonathan, when he would bring up David in a positive light. You see, the world doesn't love God. It hates God. Those who do not have the spirit of the Lord ultimately in their heart 
are like saw between chapters 16 through 30. They will rage against the Lord's purpose. They will seek to thwart it or to run from it or to change it or to destroy it in some way, shape, or form. Our text today appropriately ends with Jesus quoting a psalm written by King David. Psalm 69 verse 4 saying this, They hated me without cause. And David serves as a kind of type of Christ. And because David are also like Christ. And the world, if it persecuted Christ, will also persecute Christians. That's kind of the, the gist, if you will, of the text. So it may appear as love at first, but then it will sink into the secrecies of the heart. And maybe it'll remain there hidden, but the more sin is exposed by the light of Christ, the more it manifests into outrage and hatred of God's purpose and for God's people. So before diving into our text, I want to look at a few kind of structural observations of our text and then some overarching themes of John as a gospel. Um, and I think that'll, that'll kind of help us. So first, two weeks ago, Pastor John preached on verses 1 through 11 in John 15. And the whole text there is about abiding in the vine, Christ, that believers abide in the vine and the, the, that Christ then uses his work. He starts working through those branches that are abiding in him and he starts bearing fruit through them. And we might say, well, what is the fruit, right? Well, let's just say last week it was love. This week it's hate. It's a love-hate relationship. The love side of the fruit, not fruit, uh, we find in Pastor David's text uh, verse uh, last week. Um, those who are filled with the Spirit will love one another with the very same love that the Trinity has. Uh, Pastor David declared this to be a, the great chain of love, and he referenced an archaic song that I've never heard before, but there were people in the congregation that sung it loud and clear. Um, the great chain of love that leads all the way back to the eternal love of the Father, of the Son, and of the Spirit. And I want to note something real quick about Pastor David's text, the structure of it. 12 through 17, it was a love sandwich, as noted by his first point, um, which was called love's command. Both verse 12, the beginning of it, and verse 17, the end of it, end with love one another. And so you have these two love bread, like these two slices of love bread, and then in the middle of it, we find friendship or ser and servantship. We find deeper revelation. We find election. And then we find fruit, the fruit being love, right? So that's last week's text. And that's a pretty tasty sandwich, right? A love sandwich. Everybody wants a love sandwich. Um, this week, we don't have a love sandwich. Uh, we have a hate sandwich. And nobody wants a hate sandwich. But note with me um, the structure of our text this week. Look at verses 18 through 19. Take your finger in the text and just kind of follow along. And I'm just going to say one word as we follow along. So just kind of roll through it and, and pick up this, uh, pick up the words I'm saying. Hates, hated, hated, hates. So there's 18 through 19. Now go down to the end of the text, 23 through 24. Hates, hates. Hated, hated. And so the beginning and the end of our text has hated four times each. It's like last week had love, this week it's hate. And in the middle of this, these two slices of hate bread, we find again, similar themes, servantship, election, and then we get a little bit of a departure, exposure of sin, right? Now, doesn't that sound like a really yummy sandwich that everybody wants to talk about? Exposure of sin, let me have one of those. So there's some structural observations. Now let's look at some John, the Gospel of John wide overarching themes as well. The subject of the verb hate, the one doing the hating in this passage is described as being the world. All right. So world is used six times in verses 18 through 19. But the world is then referred to another 12 to 14 times in uh, the pronouns they, them, and their throughout the text. And so the world is 
clearly the main subject of this uh, text. It's referred to 18 or 20 times throughout this text. So Jesus gives a sermon to his disciples about the world to prepare them as they are about to go out into that very world and share the gospel. Carson says it this way. He's given us a, a good definition, I think, of the world because we might say, well, what's the world? Is it that globe or is it something else? Carson says this, D.A. Carson, the, wor the world, not the word, the world as commonly in John refers to the created moral order and active rebellion against God. We'll talk a little bit more about that. World is used 79 times in the gospel of John. In these upper room discourse chapters, these five chapters that we're focusing on, 41 of those 79 times come up in the upper room discourse. So again, as Jesus gets more personal with his disciples, he talks about the world and its reaction to them more. He's wanting to prepare them because they're about to go out into the world. So as much as I don't like hate sandwiches, and I assume you don't like either, Jesus thought it extremely important for his disciples to understand being hated without cause. And so in our text, we're going to see four reasons for why the world hates Christians. And I want to give a qualification there. I am not talking about when a Christian goes out and yells at his neighbor, get off my yard. And then the neighbor's like, I don't like you that much. That's not what we mean by hate. There are plenty of things that we do as Christians where we sin or we act foolishly that gives reason for non-believers to look at us and say, you guys are a little bit crazy, right? I don't know if I like you that much. That's not what Jesus is talking about here. Jesus is talking about when we love, though imperfectly, but we love and we serve and we display the works of Christ and we say the words of Christ and we receive hate because of that. That's what we're talking about here when I say four reasons that the world hates. Um, the second thing, the last thing that we're going to look at beyond the reasons is we're also going to see how God and Jesus turn, uh, they actually use the hatred of the world to bring about the salvation. Is the world hates us, and again, us being spirit-filled Christians who are loving and serving and speaking the words of Christ. The world hates us because it hated Jesus. And this comes from the first verse, verse 18. The world hates us because it hated Jesus. John writes this in verse 18. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. So the first word I want you to kind of look at is this word, if. There are six ifs throughout our passage today. We find it in 18, 19, 20, 2 and 20, sorry, 2 and 20. 1 in 22 and 1 in 24. If is a, a conditional statement, right? If this happens, then this happens. In this verse 18, this is what's called a first-class conditional statement. This is how it should read. This is how we should read it. If, and let us assume that it's true for the sake of argument, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. So he's making a kind of Argument of truth. It's not necessarily a guaranteed reality. It doesn't mean that there's always going to be hate experience. The world hated me first, right? That's kind of the idea. So Jesus now turns to his disciples and he's preemptively giving them comfort for what's going to likely happen to them later. And we know it does happen to them. Note how he comforts them. He says this, know that it has hated me before it hated you. He's saying to them, you're walking in my footsteps. Don't be discouraged. Don't fear, for I, the Lord, have walked this path before you. In fact, just as when the love of God flows through us for one another as a definitive proof that the Spirit is bearing fruit through us, when we are hated by the world for presenting Christ to the world, that also is a fruit of the Holy Spirit. It's a proof that we are in Christ and that the Spirit is working through us. Let's look at this next word, hated. Hated is in the perfect tense in Greek, and that just simply means it's a past completed action that is now having implications in the present. 
So it's something that's completely happened in the past and it has present day implications. What's kind of interesting here is that we have to ask the question, well, what is Jesus talking about when he says the world hated me? If it's this completed action, I mean, where do you think, like when, if someone said, where's the point in Jesus's life where you can definitively say the world hated him, where would we kind of point to? Not rhetorical. The crucifixion, right? Well, the crucifixion hasn't happened at this point. Jesus is talking about it as if it had already happened. And the reason is he's preparing them for when it does happen. They know now what to do, right? It's a perfect tense talking about something in the future. He's not referring to a future event. He's banking on what he said previous in John 14, 26, that the Holy Spirit will bring to remembrance all that Jesus has said to his disciples. He speaks of the cross as being completed here so that in the day in which it is, the Spirit will bring to remembrance to them how the world hated Christ. So I want to just reflect a little bit on just some of the ways that Christ received hate. He was opposed by most of the religious class and many others. They constantly tried to trap him in his words and in his deeds. They used traditions of man to make him appear as a lawbreaker. Uh, they tried and had him arrested. They tried to stone him on a couple of occasions. They hurled insults at him. They committed him to a sham trial full of false witnesses. They convicted him over a statement that he said that was 100% true and just reflected the essence of who he really was. They turned him over to uh, Gentile rulers for condemnation. They traded him for a murdering insurrectionist. They beat him. They scourged him. They humiliated and mocked him. They ripped his flesh and poured out God's blood. They crowned him with Adam's curse, the thorns. He was mocked by passerbys as he was on the cross. Even the criminals that were crucified to the left and the right of him mocked him. God placed their sins upon Jesus's shoulders and chained them to his very soul. The weight of those sins separated him according to his human nature from God the Father. The chain of love that we talked about last week became a chain of hate for the first time in Jesus's life. The Father turned away from him. Jesus became a man hated by God and hated by the world on our behalf. Jesus, knowing this was his lot, turns to his disciples and says, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. Hated by the world was the path of Jesus, so we should not be surprised if it's our path as well. In a way, hate can comfort, for again, it indicates that we are walking with our Lord, or it can be a sign of walking with the Lord. So the world hates us because it first hated Jesus. The second reason comes from verse 19. The world hates us because of our new nature. The world hates us because of our new nature. This is verse 19. John writes, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Uh, world is used here five times in just this one verse. And once again, we have this if word. This time, it's not a first class condition. It's a second class. So it reads something like this. If you were of the world, which you are not, but for the sake of argument, let's say you are, the world would love you as its own. That's the kind of rhetorical impact that it would. This of the world carries with it the idea of being the world's own, hence why it loves you as its own. It's the idea of you're born of the world. You're a world child. You are the world's child. You belong to the world. Jesus uh, uses this in John 8. He's a little bit stronger. He says to the people that are trying to condemn him in his words, you're of your father, the devil. And then a little bit later in John 8, in that very same passage, verse 23 says this, you are of this world. I am not of this world. So let's look at verse 19 again, back to the text. The next word, look at but. It's this huge contrastive that gets us to our point. The first part is clearly not true. 
Why? Because Jesus chose us out of the world. Jesus chose us out of the world. The, the I here, I chose you, it's shouted from the rooftops because it shows up twice in the text. It's literally, if you were reading it, it's like, I, I chose you out of the world. It's bringing this emphasis that Jesus is the source of our, our election, our choice. So there's two, in, two important interrelated teachings going on here that Jesus is putting behind these words. Two, one's more explicit and the other is implicit based on what else is going on in the Gospel of John. The first one is the teaching of election. For election is the Greek word behind the, the word choice. So when Jesus says, I chose you out of the world, quite literally, I elected you out of the world. I know all of our non-Calvinists are, are freaking out right now. Calm down. We're just we're sticking to the text here. We saw this in verse 16, uh, this idea of ch uh, choice. In uh, verse 16, in last week in, in Pastor David's text, Jesus chose them to bear fruit of love and to abide. And this week, Jesus chose them out of the world, and that's the reason for why the world hates them. Again, election's been a theme, right, in 15, but it even goes back to the Upper Room Discourse at the beginning in chapter 3. And he knows that one of them is going to betray him. The first teaching, lection, leads naturally into the second teaching, and this is the doctrine or the teaching of regeneration, being born from above or being born again, being born of the Spirit. So in John 3, way back in the day, a year ago or so, in John 3, when we were talking about Nicodemus, uh, Jesus tells Nicodemus that he must be born again, and in the Greek, it's born from above, right? You're no longer of the world. You're born from above. We already saw that in John 3. We see it again in John 8 when he's dis discussing, right? He, told, he tells him, you're of your father, the devil. And then he goes on and says this, you are from below. I am from above. And so this idea of Jesus choosing us out of the world is actually referring to the idea that the spirit of God has now indwelt us and has made us into new creatures, new men and new women whose nature are that of Christ himself, who love, who seek to serve, who speak words of truth. That's kind of what's going on because our nature contrasts with the world's nature. It's not like the world. It's a heavenly difference. It's the world's, you know, our nature is not the world's nature. Our origin is not the world's origin. Our home is not like the world's home. We are foreigners, foreigners, exiles, refugees wandering in a world that is not our own. Hence why the world is foreign to us and we to the world. So I just want to ask a series of questions. These are more for the application for you to personally reflect on. And again, these are not to, meant to bring condemnation. If you are feeling conviction after asking these questions yourselves, I would just simply ask, is it because of the way that I worded the question that you're feeling conviction, or do you think God is working on your heart? If it's the former, ignore. Ignore said conviction. But if God's working on your heart, pursue that. So here's a couple of questions to ask in light of verse 19. Um, has holiness punctured our lives. How do we see our holy nature in our words and our deeds throughout the day? How do we see our holy nature in how we work at our job place or in the home? How we love our spouses, how we parent our children, and how we are sons or daughters to our fathers and mothers. How do we see our holy nature in how we befriend, make friends, and how we neighbor how about in how we pursue being married one day if we are single and we want to be married? Do we seek a wife or a husband as one born from above or do we seek a wife or husband like maybe the world seeks these relationships? If we're freer from relational obligations or like workplace obligations, maybe we have a little bit more free time, how do we use and exercise this free time according to our holy nature for God's purpose or do we throw it away on the pleasures of this world. Um, children who believe in Christ, 
Does Jesus change how you interact with your brothers and your sisters and your parents? Sufferers, perhaps it's suffering from the world because you're sharing Christ. Perhaps it's just general suffering, sickness, or something of that, or you've lost uh, some really close people to you. How do we suffer? Do we suffer as one who's been born of God, or do we suffer just how the world suffers? Members, how do you treat one another? Um, how do you reconcile with one another? How do you work through disagreements with one another? Are these things marked by a heavenly difference? Or if someone came in not knowing anything about Christ, would they just say, yeah, this looks like normal, everyday, our lives? Art by holiness. Has holiness punctured our lives? Is the, if the answer is no, then we need to ask the question, why? The world ought to hate us because of our holy nature given to us by God. Third point, third reason. The world hates us because it knows not the Father. This is verse 20 through 21, and then also 23 can be applied to this as well. John writes this, Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. And then verse 23 again says, whoever hates me hates my father also. So again, we see this kind of chain of love in reverse. It's more like a chain of hate. So last week, it's love from the Trinity flowing down through the disciples. And now we're going to see kind of hate going up in reverse. Um, so they're void of the spirit because they do not know the one who sent Jesus, the father. So you see it starts at Christians and then it works its way up eventually to God, the father. Or as verse 23 summarizes, whoever hates me, Jesus, hates my father also. So Jesus starts off this part by calling back for a second time in chapter 15 to his teaching on the foot washing from chapter 13. So in Pastor John's text two weeks ago, in chapter 15, verse 3, we see Jesus declaring them clean, and this was based off of what he said to them at the foot washing. You're already clean, Peter. You don't need a bath, right? Now we have a second time. Jesus is now referring to chapter 13, verse 16, and he repeats a phrase that he taught then. A servant is not greater than his master. Master is Lord in the Greek. A servant is not greater than his Lord. So back in 13, he used it to teach uh, that if Jesus washes people's feet, those who follow Jesus should also lovingly serve and wash the disciples' feet, right? Here, he takes that same principle, but he applies it to a completely different area. It's no longer about serving. It's something completely different. He says, here, if they persecuted me, your Lord, they will persecute you, my servants, the principle is still true. A servant is not greater than his Lord. The servant will act like his Lord, and the servant will be acted upon like his Lord. That's what's going on here. So there's more ifs incoming, if you, if you caught that. More if statements. There's two ways to kind of read these two ifs in verse 20. One way is that the first one is true, and the second one is false. So verse 20 would read something like this. So if they persecuted me which they did, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, which they did not, they will also keep yours, which they will not, right? One evidence for this reading is in verse 21, uh, a line later, it speaks to the first line, but it doesn't really make sense with the second line. So one line later, he's expecting persecution only, and he doesn't even talk about the idea of the world receiving the word. The second way, though, that we can read these if statements is like this. If they persecuted me, which a lot of them did, they, a lot of them, will also persecute you. If they kept my word, which some of them did, they, some of them, will also keep yours. The second seems like the likelier option. And the reason I say that is because the general experience of Jesus in John has been according to the second one. Some people have rejected him. Some people have received him. 
we encounter people receiving him. So Nicodemus, spoiler alert, by the end of this gospel, will receive him. Eleven of the twelve disciples received him. Lazarus, Mary, Martha received him. And there's all kinds of examples of people who heard his word, received it, and then bore fruit because of it. Um, and so here we have something to kind of keep in mind as we share the word with people who do not follow Jesus. There's two responses. There's reception or there's rejection. Reception of the word can and will eventually manifest into love for the disciples. Rejection of the word can and will eventually manifest into rejection of the disciples. Hate for Christ. Hate for the Father. But if we don't share, we won't be hated. If we don't share the word, we'll never see people receive it or be rejected. And that's an important point to hang on to, and we'll talk about that a little bit later. So the question is, well, why? Why the hate? Jesus gets to the why in verse 21. They will do these things on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. The on account of my name should make the ears of an avid Old, an avid old Testament reader kind of start to ring. It, it sounds familiar. On account of my name, they'll do great things on my name, or they'll do bad things on account of my name. Uh, here, Jesus is making a kind of divine claim by implication. G.K. Beale writes it this way in the commentary on the New Testament, Use of the Old Testament, a really good book that you should own. Um, they will do this on account of my name reflects Old Testament terminology pertaining to God and his great name. Jesus also claims divinity alone is also hate of God the Father. The things done to Jesus are also the things done to God the Father. Whoever hates me hates my Father also. So the world hates us because it knows not our Father, as John states because they do not know him who sent me. Here's the fourth and the last reason the world hates. The world hates us because Jesus exposes its sin. And this is verses 22 through 24. John writes, If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now that they have seen and hated both me and, sorry, but now they have seen and hated both me and my father, end quote. This is the chief cause of why the world pushes back against genuine love of Christ. The chief cause is because genuine love of Christ exposes sin. And I don't mean that in like a yelling fashion. You sinner, don't you dare come here. That's not what we're talking about here. It just means that when you spend time with Christ, the wickedness of your heart becomes apparent to you. The need becomes apparent to you. And it gives you this opportunity of receiving or rejecting, kind of what we just talked about. Uh, to give a, a little illustration, a guy named H.I., uh, sorry, H.A. Ironside tells this story of a missionary he was a missionary to Africa. He doesn't give any of the kind of details. But uh, an African woman comes into his house, and she sees a mirror for the first time in her life. And it kind of shows her her reflection. First time she had really seen a reflection. I mean, I'm sure you get the you know, maybe a little bit in the water. But it's the first time she had encountered this device that shows her reflection. And so then she goes to the missionary, and she's like, I have to have this mirror. I will pay you money for this mirror. He didn't want to depart with the mirror because it was like some kind of family thing. But she pressed upon him so much to where he was like, okay, I'll sell you the mirror. And they negotiate a price, and uh, she gets the mirror. And the first thing she does with it, she goes outside, she throws it on the ground and crushes it. And then she says, I will not have it ever making faces at me. Now, the analogy here is when the mirror of Christ's love, his righteousness, his holiness, his goodness, when it shows us our own reflection, our corrupt feeling with that is to get away from me, mirror. Go away. I don't want to see that. I don't want to deal with that. I don't want to deal with the corruption of my own heart. Jesus' words and deeds expose our sinfulness. Um, verses 22 
and 23 is parallel to verse 24. Let me show you that. 22 through 23 speaks of Jesus's words, removing excuse for sin, followed by confirming hatred for Christ and hatred for God. Look at verse 24. Now it's not his words, it's his deeds that remove excuse from sin, followed by hatred for Christ, hatred for the Father. So let's look at that a little bit. I want to, I kind of want to do the if, there's some if statements there and I want to read it how we've been doing so far. Verse 22, if I had not come and spoken to them, which I have, they would not have been guilty of sin, but they are. 24 reads then, if I had not done among them works that no one else did, which I have, they would not be guilty of sin, but they are. Now let's set aside one potential problematic understanding of this section of scripture. It seems to state that there is more responsibility or accountability to sin or evil based on the amount of revelation we have received. So last week, Pastor David made a really good point. Um, Jesus turns to the disciples and says, you're no longer my servants, you're my friends. And David made this observation. He was like, well, what, what separates a servant from a friend? Greater revelation. Jesus has revealed more to them. And that's what makes them friends and no longer just servants. Well, here we have a kind of inverse of that. Here we have greater revelation means greater accountability, greater judgment, less excuse for sin. So if Jesus did not speak and do the things that he did, there would be more excuse for sin. That's how this passage is reading. The greater light means less excuse and greater judgment. This is a true principle, but again, I want to avoid something that changes, that, that we could easily make this something that just wrecks our faith, right? This principle of greater light, more judgment, uh, less excuse for sin. Some might want to say from that, well, those who have no exposure to Christ will receive no judgment and will not be held accountable for sin. So you've all heard this, like, what about that one person on that one island that no one's been to, they've had no exposure to Christ whatsoever, what's going to happen to them when they die? And a person might take this principle and say, well, they have no Christ, therefore there's no accountability for their sin. That sets up a kind of quasi two ways to heaven, one through Christ and one through complete ignorance of Christ. That's a very interesting position to hold. And we can kind of set this idea aside. Uh, when something might be unclear in a passage, you should turn to other places where it might be more clear. Um, so we can set this aside by other scripture and also elsewhere in Jesus. So I'm going to give the other scripture and then I'm also going to talk about Jesus so elsewhere in scripture, Romans 1 through 2, we find this very concept being discussed. What about those who don't have the law? Will they be held accountable? That's kind of the, the law, object of Romans 2. And Paul writes this, For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves. Even though they do not have the law, they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus, end quote. So here, the law is written on our hearts. So every man everywhere is accountable to God for sin. Everyone has received some amount of light. That's the point. There's no person that has no light. You might be ignorant of Christ, but you're not ignorant of God and his righteousness and his holiness. That's kind of the, the way. C.S. Lewis says it this way in his um, amazing work, Mere Christianity. I recommend that if you want to read more on this. He essentially writes that everyone has an idea of right or wrong. Like that's a universal concept. Everyone has an idea of right or or wrong, good or evil. Now, everyone's idea of good or evil is not the same. They might think certain things that we would call evil or good and certain things, you know, so on and so on. He then says, we obey even our own idea of good. We are not able to obey it fully. This is the work of the law written on our hearts, according to Paul, by which God will accuse or even excuse 
uh, people. So everyone has enough light to be condemned for sin. And we can further set aside that idea uh, from the words of Jesus. Matthew eleven twenty four. he says this, but I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. So context, Jesus just went to Capernaum. He preached, he did works, he brought light, and they rejected him. And he turns to Capernaum and it says, it's gonna be more tolerable on the day of judgment than Sodom. You know that place that God sent fire from heaven and destroyed? It's gonna be more tolerable on the day of judgment for Sodom than for, than for uh, Capernaum. Why? Because Jesus had spoken and done works in Capernaum. They had rejected the greatest from God, but both will be judged in that scenario. So the difference between these judgments is another conversation. I don't think the Bible re- leaves us room uh, for saying things like, oh, well, one will be eternal and one will not. I think it's severity of the eternal judgment that's being talked about, but we're not gonna, we're not gonna do that. Um, so let me speak to us kind of personally again, application from this particular passage. I'm speaking to those who might be feeling the light of Christ exposing sin, or maybe in the past you felt the light of Christ exposing sin. And I just want to give some qualifications here. When the light of Christ begins to expose sin in our hearts, when it shows us our evil corruption, this hurts, this can be awkward, this can feel shameful, this can leave us feeling very self-conscious, very vulnerable. And like Adam and Eve, our, our, our normal reaction to this is to look around and grab any fig leaf we can to cover up, make sure that no sin is being exposed here. But for believers, the discipline of the Lord is not punishment, it's grace. I tell this to my students all the time when they do something dumb at school <laughs> and they end up in my office. Um, I tell them getting caught and exposed for foolishness or sin is the grace of God. For he's giving you a chance to repent and to trust on Christ even more for the forgiveness of your sin. He's giving you a chance to allow grace to conquer sin, right? For unbelievers, this exposing light might feel like hate, It might feel like condemnation. It might feel like judgment. It might feel like exclusion. It might perhaps feel archaic, old-fashioned, perhaps even, oh, you're a cult or something of that nature. It will feel entirely unagreeable. But God is exposing your sin, and this is an opportunity for you to say, yeah, this is who I am. Trust Christ. Christ's grace is greater than your sin. Going back to believers, you need to know that when we're tempted to not confess, maybe there's a sin that we're holding secretly in our hearts and we refuse to confess it to believers, confess it to God, acknowledge it as a sin. When we're tempted to not confess sin, when Christ's light, Christ on the cross, Christ on the cross took your sin. And so if there's a bit of your sin that you're clinging to and not wanting to confess it, there's a bit of you that's not surrendering yourself to the forgiveness that Jesus freely offers to you on the cross. To confess sin is to confess love for Christ and confidence that his work on the cross forgives you of your sin. The world hates us because Christ exposes its sin through love and the words of Christ through us. So this last one is no longer reasons for hatred, but this last one is now that God uses this hatred and actually uses it as a tool to bring about salvation for the world. So the world's hate of Jesus is ironically, it's only hope for salvation. And this is verse 25, John writes, but the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without cause. God has a way of untwisting things. He has a way of our evil deeds and intent into something and using it for good. We see this throughout scripture, but we see it nowhere greater than right here in Jesus' quoting of Psalm 69, verse 4. 
Before diving into the meat of that psalm, I want to point out two quick things. First, look at the phrase, their law. That threw me off when I read that. I was like, wait a minute, isn't Jesus, this is your law too, right? <laughs> this is our law. Why is it their law? Um, is, is he saying here, right, the idea, we see this, by the way, in John 8, 17, 10, 34 as well. Jesus doesn't mean to say here that the law, which in this case seems to stand for the whole Old Testament, is not God's law, but rather their law. And, and it, with differently, what he's doing is he's using irony. He's saying, these guys that are condemning me right now, their own law says this, which is about me, that I'm hated without cause. So he doesn't mean to like separate the law from, from God or anything like that. He's using it as kind of an ironic twist. And there's a bigger one, a bigger ironic twist. The second thing is this. Look at the word must be fulfilled. In Greek, it's the front of the sentence. It controls this sentence. This must be fulfilled. This scripture must be fulfilled. It's the first thing that we see. Jesus speaks because it's important to understand that scripture is being fulfilled before our very eyes. And it very much connects us back to the foot washing passage again, where we find Jesus loving and speaking and washing the disciples' feet. And then we find Judas being filled with Satan and going out to plot Jesus' demise. That's the response that Judas has to the foot washing and the love. And then in that very same passage, what happens is scripture again is fulfilled. Jesus quotes Psalm 41.9 and says, this was always going to happen. So G.K. Beale says it this way, the world's opposition to Jesus, like Judas's betrayal of him, is shown to fulfill Old Testament scripture. God is intimately involved in what is happening in the midst of this quote-unquote hate. So where do I get this point that the world's hate becomes its only hope for salvation? Where does that come from? Jesus really likes this psalm that he quotes here. He quotes Psalm 69 three different times in the Gospel of John. One time is here when he's discussing the world's hatred of him, and we already traced how that hatred is likely talking about this future climax of the cross, the crucifixion. But we also see it two other times, and in both times that we see him quote it in John, it's always about the crucifixion, the cross, Jesus' death. So John 2.17, Jesus quotes Psalm 69, verse 9, for zeal for your house has consumed me. And then this is the context, the famous one, right? He goes in, he starts flipping tables over. And everybody's like, what's going on? And then they, the disciples remember, zeal for your house will consume me. And the very next thing that he says to the crowds when they say, by what sign uh, do you give us to do these things, these flipping of tables? He says this, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And what he's talking about there is his body being crucified. And then on the third psalm, the last time that he uses this psalm brings us directly to the cross itself. In John 19, 28 through 30, he uses Psalm 69 again. It says this, After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said, to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of sour wine on a hyssop branch, and they held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head, and he gave up his spirit. So what is this final scripture that's to be fulfilled? What is Jesus talking about in John 19? Psalm 69 verse 21 says this, They gave me poison for food, and for my thirst they gave me sour wine to drink. Now, further confirming that this is talking about the cross and not just some random really bad dinner party where someone's serving hate sandwiches up, the word poison is actually the word gall. And so we see in Matthew's account, of this same instance on the cross in chapter 27, 34, it tells us that the sour wine was mixed with gall. So this changes everything. The hate sandwich with its two slices of hate bread are actually designed to take us from hate to the place of hate, which is Christ and him crucified. The chain of hate now threatens to lead us to the very chain of Love that Pastor David lovingly proclaimed last week. Here our hate leads us to a crucified Christ who declares, 
It is finished. One word in Greek. Spurgeon writes of that one word, it is finished. He says, it is a ocean of meaning and a drop of language. Hate put Christ on the cross, and God used this hate to defeat death, sin, Satan, and hate. Hate killed Christ, and in killing Christ, it vanquished itself. So Christ, even now, dear unbeliever, offers himself to you upon the cross. You only need to cling to him in faith. Believers as well, keep clinging to him in faith. Does your list of wrongs run through your mind? Hear the words of Christ. It is finished. Have you run from God for too long and you fear he won't receive you? Hear the words of Christ. It is finished. Do you question if Christians can love you in all your sin and weakness? Hear the words of Christ. It is finished. Do you worry that you have no power to repent and kill your evil dispositions, your twisted habits, your lustful thoughts, your angry emotions, your destructive actions? Hear the words of Christ. It is finished. You see, he has turned the world's hate into the very instrument by which the world may be saved from hate. It is finished. Children, will you help me with a catechism question? I think this will be helpful for us. Question 18, we're not going to recite, but it's all about the judgment of God, right? Will he let our sin and our idolatry go past? And the answer is no. He'll judge us in this world and the world to come. Question 19, children, can you help me with this answer? Is there any way to escape punishment and be brought back into God's favor? Yet, one more question. Redeemer is the Lord Jesus Christ. Look how he loves those who hate him, dear believers. It is finished. He washes their feet. It is finished. He shares his bread and wine. It is finished. If he, our Lord, perseveres and responds to hate like this, then how much more should we, his humble servants, respond? King David patiently loved Saul, even when Saul wanted him dead. Christ patiently loves us, even as we killed him dead. It is finished. Hear again his great words, Christians, and take them to heart. A servant is not greater than his Lord. Let's pray. Father, um, there are uncomfortable truths in Scripture, uh, but we know that Jesus loves us and that he puts these uncomfortable truths before the very people he loves. And so we know that this is understanding this idea of persecution, understanding this idea of what we might receive for proclaiming Christ and walking his trail of love is needed. Lord, I pray that you would save um, any unbelievers. Lord, I pray that you would erase any mistakes or untruths that I spoke today from the minds of anybody here. Father, I pray specifically for us as members of Remedy, I just pray that we would be a people who love. That when we receive any form of hatred, however small, however big, that we're able to turn to it, immediately forgive, and immediately love and serve, and speak the gentle words of Christ. Jesus, we need you. We need you to be our, our gentle Lord, and we're thankful that you are. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.